Hey everybody, it's George. Before this episode gets started, um, just a quick heads up. I was sick this week, and we did not get the opportunity to record a new episode, so we're playing an old one for you. That's when we talked to Chris Sanchez, uh, who was our first guest, about his experience with the church and discipleship. It's probably one of our favorite ones that we've recorded, so it's nice to just reach back into the archives and uh, check it out every now and again. I apologize for the audio issues in this episode. It was before we got our new equipment. And if you want to reach out to us, as always, please do so, evangerbros at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at evangerbros. And if you have time after you're done listening, please stop by wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a rate and review. All right, without further ado, here's past George, Don, and Chris. Hello and welcome to Evangel Bros, your podcast about discipleship, historical and cultural context, and biblical literacy. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Sheever. And today we have a little bit of a treat for everyone. Yes, that's kind of a drum roll for Mr. Chris Sanchez. Uh, Chris, What's up, Chris? Say hi. Hey, hey, hello, hello. Now, Chris, uh, you've been a disciple of Don's for quite a while. You are in Blacksburg, Virginia. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you meet Don? How did you get mixed in with him? And kind of what it is about not just Don, but what he's introduced uh, and kind of reshaped in your life. And yeah, just go from there. Yeah, yeah. So um, my goodness, time moves very quickly. I had met Don years ago when he was still pastoring at New Harvest uh, Covenant Church. Uh, my dad, so I was living in uh, Metro Detroit area in Michigan, and my dad was a guest you know, preacher uh, at Don's church, so I went with him, my father, I went with him to travel to Ohio and attended a service where um, you know, my father spoke, and afterwards I anticipated you know, having a, a, a lunch with the pastor of the church, which, and, and my Fun dad. Times. Thankfully, yeah, thankfully, Don approached us and said, hey, you know, if you guys get lunch, are you guys cool if Chris and I kind of chat? Uh, and I was thankful for that offer. Um, and so, you know, I sat down with Don and we just wrapped, you know, back and forth uh, around issues of theology and race and philosophy um, and really maintained a friendship from that point, you know, moving forward, and uh, Don had, uh, I think, I'm not sure exactly how long after, but had moved to uh, Blacksburg, Virginia. Uh, his wife, Tana, was doing her PhD work at Virginia Tech, and um, they had moved to Blacksburg, and Don hit me up and was like, yo, would you want to move to Blacksburg, Virginia, and uh, help me and help this this team that he had already had, disciples he had already had established here in Blacksburg, uh, launched this church. And I prayed about it. Uh, I had always wanted to be intentionally and intensively discipled. Um, and this was, you know, a perfect opportunity. So I said yes. And um, I moved here, my goodness, uh, almost four years ago from Metro Detroit. Uh, I was living in more or less Don and Tana's closet in their apartment. Um, <laughs> For about you were a like month. Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. 
for about a month uh, and then when Dust Covenant at that point, which the, the name has shift, shifted, um, uh, got their first building, I, I moved into the building and some other disciples, we all lived together there and that was the beginning of, you know, the formal ministry and discipleship with Don. All right. So um, how has discipleship just kind of shaped your worldview? Like where were yeah. you before? Since you said that you uh, are the son of a pastor, so I imagine growing up in the church was an experience for you in that um, aspect. So mm -hmm. what's changed since you? Yeah, yeah. no, I, yeah, that's a good question. Everything has changed. Um, so I'm a pastor's kid. Um, I'm also adopted. So I, you know, I was raised in a mostly white family uh, in mostly all white church settings. And while my childhood experience in the church was mostly healthy and fantastic, which I'm thankful for, uh, the older I, I got and the more I recognized the importance of race and identity, um, I had a lot of questions about, about those, those things. And um, oftentimes prior to discipleship with Don and being at Dust Covenant, I was on doing ministry, uh, youth ministry at a, a different covenant church in, in Michigan, and um, questions of race were often uh, purposefully, it seemed, uh, avoided. Um, there was a lot of discomfort around navigating these discussions of race. Um, and simultaneously, I, I had experienced racism from my peers within the church. Um, so it was a very confusing um, and difficult time. Um, but, you know, in growing in my faith and in discipleship with Don, a lot of really beautiful and powerful things began to happen. To begin with, for the first time ever, um, I was introduced to Dr. James Cohn, who is the architect of Black Liberation Theology. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And so I was like 24, 25 and you know growing up like in the church as a pk the only voice of color from within theological scholarship that was ever discussed in church was dr king of course um we didn't get to know all of these voices of color um, that exist within scholarship um and quickly my exposure to james cone grew uh the church we were at dust we were doing a uh, book study on one of his just powerful works um, the cross and the lynching tree. Oh my and God. We, yeah. we were doing this, you know, around the times of the shooting deaths of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and uh, Tamir Rice, Dylan Roof, the AME uh, congregate members he had, he had murdered um, in South Carolina. And um, yeah, I just, you know, I began to make connections in discipleship and in my study of the importance between understanding the gospel message as being intimately interwoven into um, the plight of the oppressed. And in my community, uh, the history of African Americans in this country has begun with oppression. Um, so discipleship from that standpoint of identity and race was extraordinarily impactful. Also just biblical literacy, right? Like quickly, I, and anyone who's been discipled by Don, I imagine you've gone through this, you're asked a series of questions that seem to be elementary that you think you know the answer to. And quickly you discover, my goodness, um, I can't support this really in the text. Yeah. And it just fundamentally uh, rocked my world. And uh, yeah, so from the biblical literacy standpoint to, you know, like 
political activism and race and identity in the text, like all of these things just began to blossom throughout my discipleship time uh, with, with Don. And it was just a powerful moment. And not just for me, but for the church as well. The church, we were journeying together in this discussion of racial justice, um, human sexuality, gender equality. Um, and it was, it was a powerful time. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it. I can, um, I can definitely relate to you on the, with the last what we that you were talking about the uh, biblical literacy and questions uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was a pastor at the time when uh, I was actually a pastor at New Harvest um, or went to go to work at New Harvest after Don started asking me okay. about things that I thought I knew I was talking about but had no idea mm-hmm. it was super arrogant and just oh it was yeah. it wrecked me still yeah. wrecked me so um, okay so uh, you so you're still in Blacksburg mm-hmm. I am. Okay, what have you been doing? Because Don moved back. Don, how long ago did you move back to Toledo? Uh, I guess it's been almost two years now. Okay. Yeah, about two years. That's crazy. Um, so what have, what have you been doing since Don moved, Chris? How have you been keeping up with discipleship? And, um, you know, because I, I live in Grand Rapids and I do it, um, you know, over the internet with Don. <laughs> and yeah. that is... Uh, it's not as easy as it used to be when, you know, it was in person, we could go grab coffee or a beer and, and talk pretty much any time. So now it's, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, post dust Blacksburg, um, you know, Blacksburg itself is a very transient community. You have Virginia tech. So that was a difficulty we faced in planting the church in Blacksburg was that we had, you know, we'd go through these like, having like a really strong uh like robust community and and then a year folks are graduating and they're transitioning out of blacksburg um and that happened a lot with with dust covenant uh, and then it happened when uh don and tana moved back to ohio um so you know i continued my study and don and i we keep in touch pretty frequently um but i began to really focus on um more so on like the racial component in theology. Um, and that's led me to a beautiful, just totally inspiring uh, organization I now work for called the Christiansburg Institute, um, which was the first high school in Southwest Virginia to provide formal education to freed slaves. Um, so, you know, uh, in, in, I should say in the interim, you know, this I've been working now for Christiansburg Institute for, uh, almost a year uh, prior to that I was in management restaurant management um, and yo it's a crazy time I mean we, we can't deny the existence of white supremacy um, and racism and you know we live in the I live in the south uh, the seat of the Confederacy in Virginia Charlottesville happened that's like a two-hour drive from where I'm located um, the month before the you know national unite the right rally that happened um, the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan gathered at that same statue, uh, the Robert E. Lee statue, yeah. uh, in Charlottesville. And some folks and I, we organized some community members. We all went out to protest. And in doing that kind of like grassroots organizing work, I, I came to learn about Christiansburg Institute. Um, and I'm now a community organizer for Christiansburg Institute. And you know, I'm, I'm working with the alumni of the school who are like still here fighting for that preservation of their history. Uh, and develop it into the future. Um, so, 
Yeah, and you know, a lot of the principles that I've learned in discipleship uh, and how to have discourse with hospitality um, and how to honor folks um, while also keeping folks accountable um, has just been invaluable. Yeah, I'm, I, yeah, it sounds like it. Um, so, man, there's so, so many places to go right now. You just yeah. thrown out a lot, which, you know, I think, uh, you know, it goes without saying we're definitely going to have you um, on a couple more times because it's just nice hearing from other disciples of none. Uh, yeah, likewise. Um, so how has biblical literacy kind of shaped how you've, okay, how has biblical literacy shaped your worldview and enhanced your want and need to organize and honor people um, in a way that, not only is holding them accountable, like you'd said, but, um, you know, I cannot, I can't imagine, uh, the position that you were in going to protest and actually trying to live out loving your neighbor as yourself mm-hmm. in a way that's honoring. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I can begin by saying the biblical literacy component taught me continuity and context. So prior to discipleship, um, my like, you know, hermeneutical lens I, I came to the text with was really informed through like Western values and ideals um, in Western culture. I, I, I literally had no minimal understanding of ancient Judaism. Um, and as you know, Don has a deep affinity for ancient Judaism and Torah, yeah. and that quickly became central to my faith uh, the more I was discipled. And that fundamentally shifted the way I understood the text um, as being primarily addressed to a marginalized or oppressed people. Um, and that continuity is important. And I apply that now in my organizing work. Um, you know, for example, Christiansburg Institute. Um, being the first high school in Southwest Virginia to educate emancipated slaves, we have to remember that the alumni are still alive and they're still here. And not only are they still here, but the government bodies that took part in the destruction of the school are still here. Um, And I work closely with folks. And so keeping folks accountable uh, to the continuity of that history and recognizing an injustice while also working to build, you know, bridges and structures of accountability is, is, is really, really, really important. Um, and, you know, regarding the, the Klan rally, uh, I had never actually seen a hooded uh, Klansman in my life. I've only seen, um, you know, in person, I've only seen you know, photographs or uh, documentaries. Uh, I had never actually seen Klansmen. Um, and I should say there were 24-ish Klansmen and there were over a thousand protesters there. So wow. they were, I mean, it was, a, it was a powerful, powerful space to be in. Um, you know, uh, and so while I was there, I'm literally watching white knights like marched right by me within five feet of me open carrying uh ar-15s open carrying uh, handguns uh confederate flags 
Uh, I mean, like right, like right, you know, before me. Um, and, you know, we talk about protesting and direct action organizing, and that can look very different um, for each community. And I have a lot of respect for that. Uh, and while we really just yelled at these Klansmen, you know, like it was therapeutic um, to, to be in that space with other black and brown people, just, just, no doubt. Simply, just simply screaming uh, and, and letting out that that anger um, was a really powerful moment uh, and keeping folks accountable in that space looked like just showing up right uh, I remember even the next month as unite the right uh, Richard Spencer and Jason Kessler who are the two huge organizers for that uh, rally I remember reaching out to church leaders that I have known uh, growing up in Oregon on the west coast growing up in the north in Michigan saying like yo you need to send people here this is going to be a national moment it's going to change the way we talk about history and i was disappointed that there didn't seem to be that level of urgency and recognition of the existence and not just the existence but the growth of white supremacy in this country um i you may know dr cornell west was there he has some powerful stories yeah. of seeing, you know, white men marching towards this church where he was located giving a, uh, a sermon. Um, and I, I have a friend who uh, was an organizer there doing a lot of intel work, and he got to see some of what happened when these, um, these like, white identitarians is what they call themselves, basically. They're really, yeah. Yeah, no, it's wild, what? Richard. No, it's wild. And, and the thing is, though, what was most frustrating was We've known that white supremacy and racism is still very much alive and active. Black and brown people didn't need to be, uh, you know, we didn't need evidence of that. We just know that. Uh, what was most frustrating was after that rally happened, all of a sudden there's this national outpour, which under, is understandable. I mean, we, sure, but it took, it literally took like Nazis and Klansmen in the street with guns for people to be like, oh my God, we don't live in a post-racial world. Um, right. Which, which was just, you know, uh, really, really difficult. Um, yeah. So Chris, can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. So one of the, the values that, uh, we've often talked about is the idea of praying with your feet and mm. reference Heschel, uh, Abraham Heschel who said that, uh, about joining MLK, uh, in marching. And when I think about all the people that I've had the honor and privilege of discipling, um, if I had to pick the person that I think most exemplifies praying with your feet, it would be you. And this is, to me, what you're doing uh, with CI and with other of your community work. And you touched on it a little bit, and I, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts because I think that... Uh, as a white male, I would like to think uh, that I have some sense of what's going on uh, in uh, African-American community or just people of color, what they're facing. And I desire to march with them. I desire to pray with my feet. Um, but oftentimes it feels like, you know, 10 minutes too late. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about the way that you've seen attempted allyship that uh, 
you know, honestly, I, I think I started, I got my plane up in the air and don't know how to land it, to be fair, um, okay. on this question. I, I'm just curious because I respect so much the way that you live your prayers. Uh, you know, your desire for reconciliation, your desire for redemption, your desire to see uh, the world uh, deal with its own indiscretions. Um, and the way that you present that to the world is, is so compelling to me. And I'm just wondering uh, maybe what your experience has been, maybe predominantly with the white church or just the more affluent church in I mean, what would you, what would you want to say to us? Right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah maybe that's the question I want to ask, you know, what, what do you have to say to us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot. Um, having grown up in a mainly white church setting uh, and, and working with white people, I should say um, there has been health that existed there. Right. But the vast majority of the white church is entirely disconnected from even having a point of contact with non-white folks or people of color, which is so important. Um, And I'm at a place now in my faith and in my life where I've mostly rejected white evangelicalism because of its inability, whether that's willful or or not, uh, to make those connections between the gospel message and the plight of black and brown people in this country. Um, it's, it is truly uh, mind-boggling that um, every church is not supporting uh, a Black liberation movement. I, I, and it's, it's, it's difficult um, to even talk about theology um, if we're also not talking about, um, about race. Uh, and that's been my experience. And, um, you know, I, I am at a point now where I want to keep folks accountable and I'm much more comfortable saying, you know, uh, if you're not showing up where the oppressed exist and are moving, then I'm not interested in your gospel. I'm not interested in your Jesus. Um, and I think we're seeing that not just, I don't think that's a unique or original idea or opinion of mine. I think we're seeing that even, I would even argue in the last 12 months, I think a Trump presidency has really catapulted um, a lot of voices of color into really expressing themselves uh, in, in genuine ways and, and just, you know, being very comfortable uh, in our own black and brown skin and saying, hey, listen, when I go to a Sunday service, if you're talking about how I can have financial freedom, that's dope. I probably need that, but I'm more concerned about being shot, you know, by an officer. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'm more concerned about being profiled you know, and being pulled over, and that can lead in any direction. Um, or I'm more, you know, and this was happening, Don, we were still doing Dust Covenant in Blacksburg. Uh, when Dylan Roof walked into an AME church and shot 10 African Americans, one of whom held political office, the oldest woman who was in that room was well into her 80s. Uh, we were doing a church here in the South in Blacksburg. Yeah. And today, uh, in my organizing work with Christenberg Institute, I work with like, these black folks who, who are zealous Christians uh, and are, are in their churches and, and meeting in Bible studies. And I can't help but think, mm. what if? And I'm not sure that's a reality that, you know, my white brothers and sisters are considering. Um, Certainly not. I don't. Right. And this isn't, in, 
even, you know, beyond theology, this is about just protection of life. Um, right. And, you know, I carry that with me. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine it's hard not to. It's, I, I mean, you're. <laughs> yeah. So Chris, we've talked about the idea of like, you know, along the lines of praying with your feet, the rabbinic prayer of, uh, you know, it's not, you know, in, in white evangelicalism, maybe particularly, but is in a lot of Christendom, uh, our prayers are more like asking God to clear the path for us, to make the path smooth. Uh, whereas in there was a rabbinic prayer that was about give me the right feet for the path. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't so much about, you know, asking God to, you know, make everything nice and easy and simple. Uh, but instead, if what I'm facing is, you know, large tracts of land that I have the feet of a gazelle, or if I need to climb a mountain that I have the, the feet of a mountain lion, right? That our, our feet match the terrain. And I'm wondering, uh, I think that the white church uh, as a whole is still praying for a smooth path. And so when we come in contact with things such as mountainous areas or anything like that, that there's almost a moment where people become frozen, that they don't know what to do in that situation because what they were expecting was a flat path. And so instead of engaging that mountain and trying to traverse it, uh, people just sit down and start praying for it to be flattened. Um, so I'm wondering what maybe uh, your thoughts are about what are some things that you think that the white church could do or white evangelicalism could do to begin the process of restitution? Yeah. So I think there's a, a few different levels to this response. Uh, to begin with, white people need to understand that the biblical text was instrumental in enforcing white supremacy from the jump when this country was established. Yeah. Um, and that was something that I literally was never taught. Um, mm. Really? You know, never, no, no, never. Being a PK, growing up in the church, hanging out at church camp, Sunday school, Bible studies, youth ministry. We never talked about, you know, the foundation of this country resting on a system of white supremacy that was christened by the text. We didn't talk about that. Even today, I talk to black and, I talk to black and brown people today who do not know that. Can, um, go ahead. Can we, can we pause for a second? I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but can you educate us for a minute and people who might be listening to this for the first time that are unfamiliar with that? What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, so, so the colonists who came to this country um, viewed this land as a new Israel. Like that was the language that was being discussed in establishing colonies uh, on, in this country. Um, and that language was supported from the biblical text. I mean, even we can talk about, um, you know, darker skinned black folks being cursed, um, you know, based off texts in Genesis, um, you know, and, you know, darker skinned folks are darker because of a curse, uh, in the Noah story. And, um, that's not talked about. And I didn't know that. Um, I did not know. I mean, we can talk about the founding fathers themselves holding to extraordinarily racist views. Um, and I think we're seeing that conversation happening in a new way when we talk about monuments and we talk about how we remember history. That Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville, Virginia, 
people view that person as, you know, like a war hero um, and like an American patriot. What we don't want to talk about is he fought for the Confederacy and the Confederacy believed in owning people as property. And that's, that's the bottom line. Um, and Thomas Jefferson, you know, uh, owned slaves. Uh, that's a problem. And we can't just go, well, that was, you know, that was what was happening at that time. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, that is what was happening. He took part in that. So I just had no, I had no understanding of how the Bible and Christianity was like a tool that was implemented to support a system of a racial hierarchy. Like from the ground up, from churches that were established uh, in the earliest years of the founding of this country to uh, institutions, academic institutions, uh, like Harvard, for example, uh, and a lot of the curriculum that was in these schools uh, was extraordinarily racist. And we have to say it like that. We have to talk about it. We have to identify it. Do you think that some of the anti-Jewish slash anti-Semitic uh, readings that we do of the text uh, are also contributive to maybe some of the the white uh, supremacy, the white uh, uh, bad theology that exists? Uh, because you know this the replacement theology idea of you know the church replacing Israel, therefore the Romans in a lot of ways uh, you know replacing Israel. Uh, how much do you think, if any, that that influences maybe some of the ways in which we engage the text and maybe allows us, gives us a free pass to ignore the fact that the Bible was written to an oppressed people? Hey, Chris, before you start, Don, can you just dive a little bit deeper real quick in the anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish reading of the text um, so that anybody listening to this for the first time that's not aware that that's something that they might hear every week? Sure. So uh, most of the way that the the Bible is taught on Sunday mornings uh, is anti-Jewish at best, anti-Semitic at worst. And what I mean by that is there's a perspective that in some way uh, Jesus and Paul, maybe more so, were against Judaism and that, uh, that the Jews killed Jesus. Although, as we discussed a couple weeks ago during the Easter podcast, it was not the Jews that killed Jesus. And this idea that, um, you know, just listen, just listen, pay attention in your, in your uh, Sundays at your church. And if your pastor ever mentions Pharisee as if it's a bad word, then that's anti-Jewish. Because Pharisees in and of themselves were not bad people. In fact, Jesus most likely was a Pharisee. Paul, standing in front of the Sanhedrin, declares himself to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, And so Pharisees are not negative, yet we hear people refer to people they don't like as a Pharisee or what have you, and that is dripping in anti-Jewish sentiment. Uh, That's just one example. I could go on for hours, but we don't have that kind of time. Thank you very much. Sorry to interrupt, Chris. Go ahead. Um, Don, can you just quickly rephrase the question? Just, I was, I was afraid you're going to ask me that. I'm not sure that I know what the question is anymore. Um, yeah. Well, you talked about kind of like an anti-Semitic reading of the text. How does that inform some of our discourse around racial justice and race oh, today? Correct. Yeah. So thank you for having a better memory than me. <laughs> um, so my question, I guess, is, do you think in some way 
the fact that we've allowed an anti-Jewish at best, anti-Semitic at worst pulpit reading of scripture has emboldened us to then carry that same kind of racial superiority further or onward to today where the, the affluent church, the white church, can continue to teach in that type of way, but replace Pharisee with thugs or replace Pharisee with, uh, you know, I, I don't even know. Or, uh, yeah, I, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. It's not really part of my regular vernacular. So, uh, no, I got you. Yeah, that's a big question. And I, if I, I think I understand, you know, most of what you're asking. Um, and, I, and, I, and I hope this is helpful. I think this is where power and power structure is really important to talk about. Um, because, you know, Christians in the West or in the U.S., uh, when we approach the scripture, most often, I would argue, um, with room for nuance, you know, we're approaching it from a position of, of power, simply as being American citizens. Um, and I think that, I think that does inform maybe the way we understand those who we don't perceive to have power, or mm. um, even those who aren't. I mean, this is an interesting conversation, right? Because I think even now as we're seeing, you know, this ridiculous talk from coming from the White House about building a wall and immigrants and, you know, we have ICE very active uh, deporting people back to, you know, their countries. I would, when you said Pharisee in replacement of thug, my connection was Pharisee in replacement or uh, immigrant, right? Or alien or, yeah. or um, mm-hmm. and how does that inform the way we recognize the value uh, in in folks that are in our midst um, is that is that helpful at all? Is that yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I it's such a big question, like you said. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, and I think you and I actually talked about this briefly too, Chris. Mm-hmm. I talked about on a podcast, the Easter podcast, about the idea that uh, you know, are we like Pontius Pilate? Right, where Pontius Pilate um, saw that the system was going to put to death an innocent man, but instead of stopping that innocent man from being put to death, recognized the system benefited him so greatly with, with power and uh, money and privilege that he was almost, not almost, he was willing to sacrifice a couple innocent bodies in order to maintain his grip on power. And I'm wondering how much of that has snuck into the way we do theology as well, Mm -hmm. right? Not just the systems of like uh, incarceration, not just the systems of, uh, you know, uh, officer uh, brutality, but but also the systems of theology, right? So I, Tana, my spouse, and I were talking the other day in the car, and I said, still, always, she said something, and she didn't put a word before, a disclaimer before. I was like, so you're saying white whatever. Um, and I was thinking about that, and I think you and I had a conversation one time, Chris, is that when it says theology, what it really means is white theology, because if it was anything other than white theology, it would, it would give a disclaimer. And mm. I, I don't... I don't mean disclaimer, but I, I think it's a disclaimer, right? That 
just so you know, before you pick this up, this here is black theology. Yeah. This here is queer theology or this here is feminist theology. If you want the pure shit, you got to go to the theology section, which basically right. means white theology or white male theology. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm going to, I'm going to run with that. So, um, that was most of my exposure to theology was from mainly the perspective and experiences of white men. And listen, you know, as much as I love theology and discussing the finer points of the text and, uh, a lot of beauty and joy exists there, but I'm concerned with today and, uh, you know, the reality of the moment. So when we talk about, you know, salvation, we know that to an ancient Jew under the yoke of whatever it may be, Babylon, Rome, Egypt, we know that that salvation, when it was realized, had real tangible political, um, measurable ways to say, yes, we are liberated from this oppression. Um, when I've read theology, uh, you know, all, all different kinds of theology, kind of um, focusing more so on the, the soul and the afterlife and my spirit and dope. I think there's room and we can look at the text and say, okay, you know, and I, and I love to do that. <laughs> um, but what does that mean for me today? And what does that mean for people who look like me today? And that is where uh, James Cone uh, and made those connections with liberation has a, a tangible political economic social reality that we can discern visibly and that's something that i had not ever uh encountered until coming across tone and of course in discipleship and in, in learning about ancient judaism and i mean that's the exodus narrative that that is it that is that is the exodus narrative of an oppressed uh people uh being liberated and that uh, that liberation wasn't like a metaphysical ethereal space. It was like, literally we are marching out of here and we will establish our own land. Um, and that, that is, that is something that was missing uh, until, you know, those connections were not made until I had began my discipleship process and, and really learned about like, yo, what Messiah means. And like even all the different expectations of Messiah in the first century were centered around an actual real political liberation from Rome at that time. Um, and I apply that now, and that informs how I think about salvation, that informs how I think about liberation today. So Chris, while you were talking, uh, I made a connection in the text. Yeah, I which, saw that. <laughs> uh, I, I, may, I, I, I might take back, and it's so wonderful that this is being recorded and broadcast, but, um, I got thinking about him. So I'm thinking about Ananias and Sapphira, right? So early on in the Acts narrative, the church is just founded. We're going to assume it's predominantly made up of Jewish and oppressed people that we don't probably have a whole lot of Roman converts at this point, that it's still preliminary or probably uh, less affluent, impoverished people uh, that are coming in to this faith. And you have Ananias and Sapphira who seemingly had access to great affluence and wealth and they they did the thing where right so if you remember the story they bring in uh, a gift uh, to the church but they keep some of it for themselves and lie about it say that they gave everything but they kept some Mm 
And man, I cannot help but to think about like how that is so much of how allyship <laughs> tends to work of like, of like, uh, I, as a white pastor, I come in and say, I'm giving you everything I got. And really the truth is I'm not, I'm not, I'm keeping some stuff back for myself. And I, at the end of the day, I'm more so concerned about how everyone views me as being so generous and kind and compassionate and giving up all of my stuff. Mm-hmm. And really at the end of the day, I was keeping a bunch of stuff with for myself and trying to get the glory that uh, I shouldn't have deserved. And it just strikes me listening to you talk how embarrassing it is of how often we want to, as, as white, uh, as the white faith community want to, you know, it's the whole Abraham promises a morsel and gives a buffet, right? When the strangers come, he says, let me get you a little bite to eat and then gets an entire buffet. And the church does the exact opposite, right? For any kind of meal we're doing for homeless or poor, we're like, well, let me, let's give you a, this huge buffet. And then by the time you don't get enough volunteers and you don't get enough money donated for the food, you give them a small amount of food and then you're like, hey, you should be happy. You are hungry. Right. And I wonder if we're doing the same exact, actually, I don't wonder. I think we're doing the same exact thing when it comes to racial reconciliation in the church. We say we're giving so much and we say that we're moving towards that. Um, I think about the denomination I used to be a part of that talks about racial reconciliation. and. I, no judgment because I honestly don't know the depths, but I wonder if it's actually to the degree that the affluent white community would like to imagine it is mm-hmm. um, and yeah. how much is lacking. Yeah. Well, and so go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, um, you have to maintain the power structures, right? So of course we're going to hold something back mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, because like you were saying earlier, Chris, um, the, the the American Chris gospel. George is very sarcastic, by the way. Mm-hmm. In case yeah. you didn't pick up his sarcasm there. No, I got it. <laughs> All right. I wasn't being sarcastic. Well, when you said we need to, uh, I wasn't assuming that you felt like you needed to. Oh yes, I'm sorry. I was. Yeah, thinking, I'm, what... I'm sorry. I was speaking in the greater, the greater we of of uh, the American evangelical institution. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I completely lost my train of thought now. Sorry. Go ahead, Chris. No, no. Um, on the subject of, you know, allyship and what that looks like. And Don, you're talking about, you know, as white folks um, seek to mobilize to support communities of color, what's important for allies to understand, and I encounter this all the time, and it is often from self-proclaimed liberal Christians or progressive Christians. It's like, yo, and this is me speaking to like one of these theoretical Christians, right? Like you don't get to determine what liberation looks like for my community. You do not get to determine uh, if my methods of protest or my methods of organizing are palatable. That is a, that's a huge, huge, huge problem. I remember when uh, I was having a discussion, I was at this really great conference um, and it was a really diverse group of people. And I was, we were having dinner uh, and I was speaking with a woman who was from the West Coast, she's an artist in California. And she was talking about a lot of this discussion around monuments and the Confederacy and, uh, you know, a lot of hate speech disguised as well. This is free speech. Um, 
And I was speaking with her and I told her how I attended uh, a Klan rally to protest. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful that we have people like you who are doing that, which was extraordinarily condescending. And then went on to say that, but, you know, everyone has a right to speak. And she viewed herself as a healthy ally. And as mm. I was listening, and I told her this as I was listening, I, I said, listen, um, when we're talking about, in this case, the Klan, in, for my community, this, this group of people, which are nothing short of terrorists, have done enormous violence and injury, uh, spanning decades. Um, and in her view, she was so progressive that she wanted to protect the free speech of everyone. When I'm looking at her saying, yo, that dude in that hood historically could have lynched someone who looked like me. And do you even know what lynching was and, and what mm -hmm. that meant, even beyond the actual uh, method of, of lynching, but the psychology and right. the presentation of a body lynched in public and what that would signal to that community um, of, of folks. And it's, it's extremely important. And we're seeing this with Colin Kaepernick as he was taking a knee, uh, getting pushed back directly from the White House. Um, and also from a lot of folks across the country saying, well, he shouldn't use that platform to protest. That's inappropriate, he's disrespecting the flag. That is absurd. And that is a fundamental problem with the discourse is that white people still want to maintain their power as we leverage these discussions. And allyship would look like taking the posture of a student going, yo, maybe I'm wrong, I'd like to listen, okay? You don't get that a lot though. What we hear a lot is, well, I'd rather they don't riot. You know, I'd rather they don't protests in the streets, there's gotta be a better way to do it. And, uh, you know, allyship, that's not allyship. That's just another means of monopolizing power. I, I couldn't agree more, Chris. Um, I, so recently, uh, right after the Parkland shooting uh, and then the uh, March for Our Lives uh, broadcast of that march, you had posted something on Facebook about uh, now that there's some white kids involved, now people are going to show up for a march, mm -hmm. right? And I remember very clearly and distinctly that I said, wait, I was watching the broadcast and there was lots of different voices mm -hmm. at that microphone and that they were very aware of their privilege. And, um, you know, you and I had a little bit of conversation back and forth on that. And I quickly, as someone who would like to think that I'm a healthy ally, I realized by the end of that conversation, man, I was the fragile white guy who was like, man, <laughs> come on. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and that's, that's hard. Uh, and when I say that's hard, I, I'm not saying that's hard in comparison. I'm saying it's hard to process for myself as someone who desires so much to be a healthy ally that it's so easy to forget my lane and step out of it. Um, and I think I sent you a message saying I can either delete those posts or yeah. I can leave them there as a monument of my embarrassment. Uh, I think they're still there. Um, but one, I just want to say, first of all, I just respect the way that you have always been very gracious to me and the other people I have seen you interact with. And I'd say those who are genuinely interested in understanding. Um, but I'd also say I've been so appreciative of just your absolute honesty and calling what is wrong wrong um and 
I think that that has been such a, a gift to me that when I think about all the things that I got to experience in your discipleship time, the, the things that you shaped in me, I am so blessed and grateful for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just, so I wanted to express thank you and gratitude to you as well, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in so many ways you continue to teach me and that's not your job. And I'm just very, very uh, humbled by that. Yeah. Well, you know, thank, thank you, Don. And, um, you know, that Facebook post I had made, you know, I had actually shared a post out of Black Lives Matter DC that they had shared on their, you know, public page, uh, which was basically saying, you know, all the white folks who did not show up to protest alongside Black Lives Matter are now right. showing up today yeah. for the, the march that was happening, the um, Fight for Our Lives march. And yo, I, that march was necessary. Um, you know, I, I have my reservations about the organization component, but that's not important right now. I, I bless that march. I think it was good. It needed to happen. Um, my concern is that uh, when when the the optics all of a sudden shift and uh, white lives are are um, now being lost, uh, then I see a lot of national support rallying around um you know in this case contextually uh you know anti-gun uh right you know gun violence which we should be talking about and that's necessary however uh gun violence has been a a main tool or strategy of white supremacy through the state uh to uh communities of color you know from the jump and so when Black Lives Matter was coming out and saying, hey, we're being, you know, shot dead in the streets, unarmed, and there's no mm-hmm. justice, and we have grieving mothers, and we're losing our fathers to mass incarceration, uh, you know, and gun violence is happening in our communities at the hands of law enforcement, why are we not being supported in the way we're seeing this movement, which is good, it does need to be supported. However, why, why is that same national outpour not being received when we're also in the streets, you know, trying to fight for our lives. And that, that was the context in which I was just trying to keep folks accountable. Like we got to have a more robust critical analysis of gun violence that includes police brutality against black and brown folks. Um, And actually, you know, we're seeing even students now in high schools in that area in Parkland, Florida, uh, black students are coming out saying, Hey, like, yes, gun violence is a problem. These, these access to guns is a problem. But let's also be talking about gun violence, you know, uh, um, from the state or, you know, uh, from the government. Um, and, you know, I think we, we constantly have to be alert uh, and keep folks accountable. And a lot of that for me, uh, aside from discipleship, comes through. Uh, I don't know. I know, Don, you, you know, uh, George, have you heard of uh, Brian Stevenson? Yes. Yo, okay. Yeah, Brian Stevenson is doing some incredible work uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, I could go on and on about his work. Through the he wrote book. the book, Just Mercy. Right, yeah, he wrote a we'll book. put up that in the, in the notes. Yeah, yeah, which I wrote a book review for. And, um, oh, we'll put that in the notes too. Yeah, and, you know, uh, he historically was an attorney who defended wrongfully accused, often black or brown folks, condemned to die in death row. 
and he would defend them. And uh, he has since launched uh, a non-for-profit, the Equal Justice Initiative, and they're building the first ever uh, like memorialization of the victims to lynching. Yeah, um, I think, didn't yeah. you post a link about that a couple of yeah, days Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh man. Yeah, which is like crazy to think that in 2018, we're just now. <laughs> Yeah. He's been talking about that, you know, what he's done and his team has done. They've gone around the, the South and they've collected soil from known lynching sites and they've written the names of the folks who were lynched on jars and put the soil in those jars. And they have this huge wall that's called the Community Remembrance Wall. And um, just one of the great things that they're doing, but something that I've learned through reading his work is this commitment to truth telling. And um, that's hard to do and it can be un unpopular, um, but we, we have to be honest and we have to be transparent about the way we talk about any kind of discussion. You know, and we have to just say it uh, and recognize it to even know it. Um, and so as I'm seeing the, the, the narratives framed around gun violence, I, I just have to, I have to remind folks, you know, black and brown people have been victims of gun violence uh, for a very long time, and that needs to be a part of the discussion. So, Chris, we're like really close to the end of our time. Well, yeah, uh, sure. I, I want to ask one question really quick, Tom. Sure. I okay. also have one. That's fine. Okay. I have one okay. too. Okay. Well, um, so, Chris, going off of, of what you said um, about the disproportionate amount of allies showing up for the Parkland um, anti gun protest versus the Black Lives Matter protest. So, you know, when I started realizing um, just in my life how, you know, I've been culturally racist and, you know, things that I never questioned until like the last couple of years when mm -hmm. people have been pointing this stuff out to me, um, I, and sometimes I would become so paralyzed by the shame and, and just not, not knowing what I was doing that I was, I, I didn't know how to start to become an ally. Mm. So like, what, is there any advice that you can give? Like since then, you know, um, yeah. Is there any advice that you can give to people that might be listening to that or just for the first time hearing what you're saying and realizing, oh wait, I, I participate in that system. I am a problem um, of being, or I, I help perpetuate that issue and I didn't realize it until now. Yeah, so um, I think it, it can probably look different for everyone, but I would say you have to educate yourself. Um, and that education process needs to, like the primary sources in that education process needs to move from voices of color. That's so, so, so important. Upon which you will find a diversity of ideas about what we're talking about, right? Like the black community is not a monolith. You will find folks who disagree with me and I'm okay with that. Uh, but at the very least, we need to uh, have a, a, a stronger point of contact with voices of color in, I guess, maybe in this case, theology or in organizing, but also just in our communities. Um, I think that's a huge part of the problem. Like, yo, I can tell pretty quickly when I meet with somebody who, who is white, if they have points of contact with black folks. I can, I, can, I can tell pretty quickly, just based upon the language 
uh, and the framing of the conversation, if this person has routine contact with folks who don't look like them or who don't share the same experiences. So I would, I would argue it begins with education and then also uh, in a, a level of honesty. I think what you, you just did is like that first step in, in just saying like, yo, I don't, I'm not maybe doing this well. I don't know how to do it and I need guidance. But that, but that level uh, of, of like inquiry and that posture of a student needs to be maintained throughout the entire process of allyship, not just from the jump, but when you, like, you know, for example, I'll go to a meeting. Uh, I work with Surge showing up for racial justice. I've done some work with the organization, anti-racist organization that's chapter-based nationally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, you know, we'll be talking about a direct action initiative, protest initiative or organizing initiative. And there will be a person in the room that might say, well, I think that's, you know, kind of militant or that's too extreme. And, yeah. yo, that person has to be called out right then and there um, and, and be told, hey, listen, uh, you don't get to decide. Going back to what we discussed, you don't get to yeah. decide how we do this. Your, your voice is welcome. Um, but you gotta have that posture of a student throughout the throughout the the entire process of allyship, and I I'm learning that too. Like, sure, I'm a person of color, but I benefit from patriarchy. Um, you know, yeah. I'm a cisgendered straight dude. I benefit from that as well, and I'm learning in my own language how to like be a better ally to to these communities as well. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting as our podcast uh, continues in following weeks and months that uh, as we introduce some more of the intersectionality of these conversations, right. not just the very yeah. simple topics, because I mean, way oversimplified. If we're just talking about race, there's so much right. more that goes into it than just race. There's able-bodied, disability, yeah. uh, women, etc. So Chris, if I could ask you a question before we wrap up. Um, mm -hmm. That would be really helpful for me to think about. Do you have hope for the white church? Like, do you, um, do, I say like, I mean, we're going to survive <laughs> yeah. because we're like cockroaches. And so let's just, I mean, it's going to survive, but I'm saying like, when it comes to you, mm -hmm. when it comes to, this idea of being healthy in our racial reconciliation, healthy in our racial equality, equity, all of that. Yeah. Do you actually have hope in the church, in the white church? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say that I do, right? But I think I want to give an example that might be helpful. So uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who's kind of entered the main stage as like a mm -hmm. prominent black intellectual um, and one of his more uh, popular works, uh, Between the World and Me, he talks about like this very question, how he was asked in an interview from a white woman, um, like we understand this history of injustice and violence done against black and brown people. Uh, and she asked him, but you know, moving forward, is there hope? And in his reflection in his, in his book, he was so disappointed because at that moment he realized that like, for this white person in particular, but I think it's prob probably true in a lot of cases, like there's still like this, well, we can get kumbaya, like we can really resolve this uh, in a peaceful way and we can have reconciliation and it can be real and it can be equitable. And Ta-Nehisi Coates kind of left that interview disappointed because that woman had missed the whole point that these ideas of hope and how they're defined 
while I think they need to be discussed, like, you know, across multiple communities, um, it, it's going to look different, I think. And it's going to make folks uncomfortable. And I think the hope is white folks internalizing that um, and being more comfortable with saying, I'm going to have to give up a hell of a lot of my privilege and my power and my space if hope is to be actually achieved. Yeah. Oh, my microphone was off. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, saw, I saw movement. I just could not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I was, I, I'm, I, that was a great response. And I said, I, I hope you don't leave this interview dissatisfied. Uh, because not at all. No, 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 no. And I, I read that book and that's partially why I asked the question because I also remember that being a very poignant moment. Uh, in that book. So I, I was so delighted. I held up the little sign and said, I love you so much because <laughs> you, you made that connection to that book. And, and, but I do wonder if, I think it's interesting. I, you know, I, I think as Christians, particularly as white Christians, our hope is a spiritual hope, right? And you mentioned it earlier that, you know, the, text and salvation and liberation is all very, very physical. And it's almost like, I think the church is talking, uh, you know, the white church versus uh, non-white churches um, are, are talking two different languages because uh, white people will send their prayers and thoughts and uh, churches of color need to put on, strap on their boots and start marching. And, and I think that, that's such a sad state of things that we lost the physicality of salvation. We've, we've lost the physicality of liberation in, in the white church. No longer is my salvation wrapped up in the salvation of the oppressed. It's only wrapped up in how well I say a prayer or how well I follow some doctrines. And, and that crushes me. I can say though, as you have always done, as you are, your view of, of faith, your view of the text, your view of the world, um, I, I'm so, so blown away constantly by, by the way that you kind of take all of those things and then you turn them into the physicality uh, and you pray with your feet. And uh, you're such an encouragement to me and I'm, I'm grateful for you. Um, and yeah, George, I don't know if you have anything else. Otherwise, I'm just going to spend the next 10 minutes gushing all over Chris and then that gets awkward. And <laughs> Well, I mean, to be fair, you do that even when Chris isn't around. So I do. I gush on Chris a lot. All the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, Chris, I know that when we were talking offline before uh, we started recording, we were like, hey, we don't, let's not really talk about race. Um, since it's your first time on. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I can't think of a better introduction to who you are. And this is the first time you and I have met. And I, yeah, yeah. I was, I, I look forward to the next time where I can sit as student um, and listen to you talk more. I'm very excited about that. Uh, is, there, is there any way that um, if our listeners want to, um, kind of follow what you're about and everything. Do you have a, a Twitter uh, that you use or anything website that you want to throw out there? 
Uh, I, I am not active on Twitter. I have an account, however, I don't use it. Maybe I should. Um, you know, my Facebook is how I'm really communicating a lot of my ideas. Um, you know, I, I could probably uh, sharpen my social media presence, um, but I'm always happy to interact and to, to dialogue around these issues. Okay. Well, um, no, I've, I've got, I've got nothing else other than Chris. Thank you so much for your time and, um, everything that you're doing and everything that you're bringing to these conversations. Yeah. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm happy to have been here and to be a part of this podcast. Uh, I think it's a needed, a needed space, uh, right now in evangelicalism. Uh, and that keeps me hopeful. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. Mm-hmm. Well, um, this has been Evanger Bros. If you have any follow-up to this podcast where you want to ask questions or help engage um, in this conversation, uh, you can find us on Facebook at Facebook forward slash Evanger Bros. You can find us on Twitter at, at Evanger Bro or shoot us an email at evangerbros at gmail.com. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Sheever. And Chris, thanks so much for coming on. And everybody, have a great week. Thank you. See ya.